Well, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And two Sundays ago, we began the first part of a two-part series called Sabbath Sabotage. And today we're going to finish studying the second part. The outline in your notes should look familiar to those who were here for that first part. And for those that uh, weren't here, you're welcome to go online and you can listen to the first portion of, of the message on our church website. The reason the series is called Sabbath Sabotage is because the Lord Jesus Christ is exposing the false system, religious system of the Pharisees. And the word sabotage means the act of destroying or damaging something deliberately. And the Lord strikes at the core of their religious system when he addresses their false understanding as well as their false application of the Sabbath. By divine design and principle, the Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest, a day of blessing to people. And it was woven into the fabric of creation as God modeled that day of rest on the seventh day in the creation account. Later on, the Lord instituted the Sabbath as a special day for the nation of Israel to rest and worship. And this also allowed them to serve as witnesses to the surrounding nations of their faith in Yahweh, the one and only true God. And sadly, the Sabbath was hijacked by the scribes and the Pharisees who began to add additional instructions that were rooted in their religious pride. And these instructions were burdens on God's people. And in the first part of the series, we surveyed just a few of them. And the reason that we took time to consider these Uh, additional requirements and regulations that were included in the rabbinic writings in the Mishnah and in the Talmud was so that we could understand why the Lord Jesus Christ was so intentional about exposing their works-based system. The Sabbath requirements and regulations that they imposed were designed so that the, uh, the Pharisees could actually elevate themselves above the people. And this was a major problem. So our Lord ordained these two Sabbath controversies, which reveal how religious self-righteousness continues to be incompatible with the gospel. Are you ever tempted to elevate yourself over someone else? Are you ever tempted to elevate your service to trump someone else spiritually in your own mind? Such examples provide insight into religious pride and self-promotion that can attempt to creep into our lives. And our message today will continue to refute such thinking as we stay grounded in the gospel. Let's read our passage that we'll focus on today. It is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And in the New American Standard, it says this. Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And Jesus said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent after looking around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
And the man stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. As we look back on what we've covered in the last few Sundays, starting in Mark chapter 2 through today's passage in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we have five interactions where Jesus Christ is defending his ministry against opposition. And each interaction has allowed us to see how the opposition continues to grow stronger and stronger against the Lord's ministry. Already, Jesus has a reputation as a blasphemer, according to Mark 2.7, a friend or colleague of sinners, according to Mark 2.16, an apostate from religious custom, according to Mark 2.18, and now a Sabbath breaker, according to Mark 2.24. And this is the nature of the opposition that we've affirmed in the, the past. It begins with people questioning, then it moves to people complaining, And in the end, it involves them conspiring. Our first Sabbath controversy involved the disciples. But in the second controversy, all eyes are going to be on Jesus. And as your notes share, first of all, look at the Pharisees' purpose plot in verses 1 and 2, followed by the Lord's severe rebuke in verses 3 through 5. And we'll end with the Pharisees and the Herodians' conspiracy. Let's get started with the Pharisees' purpose plot. And verse 1 sets the stage for us. It says, Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. We know now, after even our brief study of Mark, that the synagogue was a common place for the Lord Jesus Christ to show up and teach. It was common for he and his disciples to travel from synagogue to synagogue. In fact, Mark chapter 139 shares And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. What is unique about the setting in this account, we're told that there's a man with a withered hand inside. We don't know his name, nor does Mark provide any additional details about this man other than he's inside. And in the Greek, the word shriveled can also mean dried up or stiff. So we are talking about a man with a stiff or a a deformed hand, okay, that's inside. In Luke's account, Dr. Luke, who is attentive to the details, he discloses that it's the man's right hand. It could be a condition that he developed over time, or maybe it was a birth defect that he was born with. We simply do not know. What we do know that is, according to verse 2, This appears to be a setup by the Pharisees. Look at verse 2. It says, They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Remember the Sabbath restrictions that I mentioned last time. It wasn't, uh, you weren't allowed to help anyone unless it was a situation that was life threatening. You may recall that. It wasn't even permissible if you had a sore throat to gargle vinegar. Uh, Medically, it wasn't permissible to even set a dislocated hand or foot. You had to wait until after the Sabbath was over because it wasn't considered life-threatening. 
So the Pharisees, aware of the many miraculous healings that our Lord performed conveniently, have this man positioned inside the synagogue. And by the way, this is a different Sabbath in, in the accounts. As you re, uh, look at the uh, other account in Matthew, uh, it does, it, it does, it, I thought it was the same account when the first time that I read the passage. And then Luke, again, we're, we're, we're uh, saved by Dr. Luke because he provides us with the fact that it was a different, another Sabbath, hetero in, in the Greek, a different Sabbath. In the Greek, it is saying they watched him closely hanging in suspense. The Pharisees most likely heard that Jesus had already healed on the Sabbath back in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, where he goes in. He's, it's a preaching ministry. There's a man with a demon, right? And the demon is cast out. Certainly they caught wind of what had taken place. And so... They're standing on high alert, ready to accuse Jesus. And the irony is that Jesus knows what, that they're, what it is that they're up to. Jesus knows their hard-heartedness and their commitment to their Sabbath legalism. And will try to prevent Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they conspire to do evil. And here we get a glimpse And we see just how wicked the Pharisees' plot is. It was a synagogue where men were assembled to hear the word and to worship God. Yet even during a time of worship, these wretched formalists, these legalists, are plotting an attack against Christ. The very men who pretended to have such strictness and holiness and little things were full of maliciousness and anger and angry thoughts in the midst of the congregation. And this is hypocrisy to the nth degree. This is what self-righteous people do. They spend their time looking downward and outward at other people. They look horizontally. They don't look vertically. When they need to be looking inwardly at their own faults, their own sins. Question for you. How can you and I prevent such religious self-righteousness from creeping into our own hearts, into our own lives? How can we prevent that from occurring? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced a dead battery in your car. Anyone ever accidentally left your lights on? Or maybe if you grew up in the freezing cold tundra of Chicago like I did, which has got a reputation for killing batteries each and every winter. There's something that you can do if your battery dies in your car. You can do what? You can do, somebody out loud? You can jumpstart it, yeah. You can uh, jumpstart it. But in order to do that, you need two things. First, you need jumper cables. And second... You need another car battery or power source to connect to. And so, those of you who have never seen jumper cables, I thought I'd go ahead and let you see what those look like. It's a good idea to keep a set of these in your car. These are some older ones that are really, really long for illustration purposes, of course. 
And I'm going to need some help because these are, these are pretty, to, pretty heavy to hang on to. And um, Jan, you want to come on up here and Jan the man? Come on up and, and help me out here. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Warm greeting for, for Jan coming up to, to help us out. Thank you. All right. I want you to go ahead and, and take the end of the, the jumper cables. Okay, because we're going we're gonna to talk about them here just for a little bit. See, human beings are a lot more like dead batteries than they realize. Batteries... Uh, basically put off a positive and a negative charge. And on a battery, the negative charge is represented by the the dark side or the the black side of the battery, and there's a little minus sign there. It's negative. On the other side of the battery, it's positive. Okay? And I see some people smiling out there because I think there's probably some stories with, with situations where cars have been jumped incorrectly, and we'll talk about what that can lead to a little bit later. But this is really a good picture of the gospel that we're depraved. We have a negative sin nature, right? This represents um, our, our, our depravity, our incapacity to do anything to save ourselves. We're lost. We're hopeless without Christ. We have nothing, right? But when a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they come to the cross, right, they realize, they humble themselves, and they bring that depravity. They bring that need. And it's connected. They're humbled. They're broken. They realize that they're in a desperate situation, right? And all of our unrighteousness, all of our depravity, every sin that we would ever commit over the course of our life is transferred to the cross, has been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ when we trust in him completely for our salvation. And then something happens. There's an exchange that's made, right? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It covers our sin. And there's a a measure of grace that's imparted to the person of faith that is transferred through their faith to that person. It is an imputed righteousness. It is a perfect righteousness that cannot be attained on 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 our own in any way. And that's transferred to the person of faith. And the connection point, we know this, for the person of faith is the heart. And this is a spiritual illustration, Jan, so I'm going to spare you, okay? (laughs) We're not going to try to just wedge these babies in there. Say, come on, all right? Let's, let's, let's wedge these in here. How about the ears? Should we do the ears at least? Let's click them on the ears. I want you to keep holding them there for a, for a sec. Actually, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you sit down. He's, you know, how about a round of applause for him? But it's important that we see this connection. And 
at the moment that that connection is made, when our faith is genuine, when our hearts have been born again, when we're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Not only do we have access to confess our sin and to bring our sin regularly to him, but we also receive through the gospel, through the connection to Christ, through the gospel, the grace to live in such a way to honor the righteousness that has been imputed to our account. Now, as a believer, okay, the connection's already been made. And yet, as I asked at the beginning of the service, there's still a possibility that self-righteousness from the old man tries to enter into our lives. It tries to look down on people. It tries to exalt self. And what is the answer to make sure that it happens? Or that doesn't happen, excuse me. R.C. Chapman, a man that Charles Haddon Spurgeon refers to as the saintliest man he ever knew, said that he who is low, fear not a great fall. He who is low, fear not a great fall. And Chapman's point is that humility keeps us grounded. When, when we walk in humility, it grounds us. And this is exactly, this is exactly what this negative charge does. It grounds us keeps us grounded and that it doesn't allow us to exalt ourselves over the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to our account it doesn't allow us to 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 step step up and and look look down at other people and we need that reminder now for those who are smiling about charging a car battery earlier, you know what will happen if you don't ground it when you try to charge a battery? You know what will happen? Yeah, it's not good. It is not good. You'll see sparks flying and you may even see a battery explode. Why? Because it needs to be grounded, otherwise it's completely incompatible. And the point that the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to help the Pharisees see is that they don't understand their depravity. They don't understand their system that is trying to exalt self and and ascend to the righteousness of God, which they cannot do. They don't get it. To some degree, they're saying it's it's really not that bad. You know, um, I'm going to obey the law and... And I'm going to go ahead and, and continue to try to work my way towards God. And I'm going to lord the law over God's people as well. And have them stay committed with us to the same system. And it simply will not work. It won't work. We need to stay grounded. We need to always be focused on the the, the reality of our depravity. That is what keeps us from exalting self. That is what keeps us from um, ever 
um, taking a view of ourself and trying to lord it or position it over another person. And all this leads to the Lord's severe rebuke beginning in verse 3, continuing all the way through verse 5. The Lord's rebuke is seen in four different aspects collectively in these verses. First, it's seen in Christ's attitude. Look at verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. At first glance, in our English translation, it can give an impression that Jesus is angered with the man, but here we should picture Christ looking with disgust, disgust at the Pharisees as he instructs the man literally to stand forth. He's not asking him to come stand right by him. He's saying in the midst of the congregation, he's saying, stand forth so that everyone could see him. One commentator shared this insight. One can almost feel the man's horror. Had he dreamed his deformity would be made a public spectacle, surely he would never have braved attending the synagogue. Rather than escaping notice, the dread of most persons who bear deformities is having people stare them in the face. Here the man is summoned by Jesus to the center of the synagogue. End quote. Yeah, nobody likes to be called up front. And Jan will even affirm for you that I talked to him before the service and asked him if he'd be willing to come up. Because I, nobody enjoys that experience. And those um, who, who dread those experiences can, can certainly relate to what's taking place here with the man. He was not asked to come stand beside Christ, but rather commanded to stand into the midst in a place where all could see him and his deformity. And Jesus' opponents, they need not spy on him any longer. He's right there and he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this right here in front of you. Our Lord intended to use the man to give a public demonstration of his attitude toward the perverted Sabbath rules of the scribes and Pharisees. The second aspect of the Lord's rebuke is seen in Christ's question. In verse 4, Jesus asks a loaded question when he says to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And this question, it fascinated me in my study because there is so much going on right now. Like you, you have the Lord Jesus Christ who can see directly into the hearts of men, who's been able to rewind the tape and see their hardness of heart going all the way back to the time where he healed the leper when they weren't even present, but Jesus knew that they would hear about it. Jesus knew that they would find out that he touched the leper, that he was ceremonially unclean. That actions took place on the Sabbath, back when he cast out the demon in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. When he healed the paralytic, when he said, son, your sins are forgiven, performed a miracle right there. And this question is just loaded. And Jesus was the master at asking questions that left them cornered. And here Jesus frames the extremes and force them to silence. They literally couldn't answer his question. And the tension and the weight that the Lord Jesus Christ was allowing them to experience 
was directly related to all the regulations and rituals and requirements that they had loaded up on people and even upon themselves to fulfill. So when he asked the question, hey, is it okay to do good or to do harm? Is it okay to kill? Is it okay to save a life? They, they cannot answer that question. They would have to have it qualified in some way. Well, well, what do you mean? What is it that you're talking about? Things were so convoluted that many didn't even know what they could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. They did, they did, you know? And, and those of us who've ever lived with somebody or, or, or been experienced um, being around somebody who is very controlling, right? There's an aspect of this, and, and then that's a form of self-righteousness and, and, and wanting to, to, to control, right? Sometimes you're, you don't know, can I take two steps? Can I take three? What can I do? Is this okay? Is that okay? Is this okay? Is that okay? And that's what the Pharisees forced people to do. How many steps could they take? If you remember, they could take on Sabbath 1,999, approximately 800 meters, right? Boop. They had it all under lock and key. And Jesus is asking this question, and it's so good. He's having them feel the weight of what they're doing to God's people. And at the heart of what's going on here, and it's something that we need to see. If we boil it all the way down to, 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 and, and peel the onion all the way back, what, what is being wrestled with here is authority. It's about authority. And from the previous Sabbath, before this, their ears are still ringing that the Lord Jesus Christ announced that he is Lord of the Sabbath. In the pharisaical religious system that developed over the centuries that was divorced of true faith catered to the authority of the scribes and Pharisees who held the fulfillment of the law over the heads of God's people. But guess what? Jesus shows up. He comes onto the ministry scene and we're told by those who witness him that he speaks as one who has authority. He is literally bucking the damning system of the Pharisees. And for Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative. When somebody is in need, when there's a way that, that can be served, that's a prime opportunity to minister to someone. And you know what the Pharisees were doing? They were tying people's hands. You can't carry your children on, sun, on, on the Sabbath. Sorry. Sabbath, not Sunday. Can't even carry your children. Can't minister to somebody. Somebody's roof collapsed and it's raining. Well, if nobody was hurt and they're not injured, you'll just have to wait till the Sabbath is over and sit in the rain all night until you can fix it. That's what was taking place. Where good needs need to be done, there can be no neutrality. And failure to do good is to misunderstand the will of God. And Jesus is saying, it is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but right to heal on the Sabbath. Whether the Pharisees 
say it's lawful or it isn't. I love this quote by one commentator who said, a litmus test of true versus false religion is its response to injustice. In the face of the man's need, the religious authorities are silent. The silence of the authorities is evidence that for them, religion is about fulfilling stipulations, like driving the speed limit, to use a modern analogy, even though they would very much like to drive faster. This kind of religion can easily be separated from human need. For the conniving observer's proper religion is not about the intent of the heart, but about things that can be empirically tested and measured, about the questions of theological correctness and matters of purity and fulfilling legal requirements. The observers, observers are willing to tolerate the lamentable condition of another human being in this instance to use it as possible leverage against Jesus. But Jesus does not use people, whether powerful or powerless, for ulterior purposes for Jesus, the gospel of God is different from proper religion in that it's about the disposition of the heart which cannot remain unmoved in the face of suffering. That was so good. So good. And we see this week after week as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ ministering with a heart of compassion while at the same time exposing the hardness of heart of the Pharisees, which is... Doing what? It's a, a reminder for us to check our own, right? As he continues to help us see that religious self-righteousness is completely incompatible with the gospel. And the Lord's rebuke is seen in his attitude in verse 3, his question in verse 4, and now it's reflected in Christ's emotions. Look at the beginning of verse 5 as it reveals two strong emotions from our Lord. First it says that he looked at them with anger while at the same time grieving at their hardness of heart. Those of us who are parents can re relate to the duplicity of these emotions it, just in our interactions with our kids. When they deliberately disobey us, there's a, a righteous indignation. There's a righteous anger associated with that. While at the same time, there's there's a grief. There's a grief over their hardness of heart and their need for the gospel, their need for repentance. It's painful and it's real. And here in the Greek, the verb translated grieved is in the present tense, indicating that Jesus' grief was ongoing as he was dealing with their hardness of heart, they, 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 their hearts kept getting harder and harder and he kept grieving and grieving. Their obstinate and willful resistance to the truth indicated that a process of hardening was taking place, rendering their hearts more and more unresponsive. And what's interesting here too in this verse is that the heart, the word heart is actually in the singular and it's a reflection of their unity of standing together in hardness of heart. Maybe your heart responded recently in a similar fashion as the news and the videos came out on the internet about what's taking place with Planned Parenthood. 
and you saw fetal remains being plucked apart and sold for profit. Let me share that this anger is permissible when it's grounded in a righteous indignation. Okay? It's permissible. Notice I didn't say in a self-righteous indignation, but a righteous indignation. A self-righteous indignation would say, why I would never do something like that. Or I, I, I can't believe those people. But a righteous indignation says, if not for the grace of God, I would be doing the exact same thing. Or I could potentially do the same thing. Remember, humility keeps us grounded and it even helps us channel our righteous anger accordingly. In the, in the Greek, the, the verb look around is actually, this is really interesting. It's, it's in the aorist tense, which means it's basically in the past tense. And Jesus looked around with anger, okay? But what we would need to see, what we should see to capture the heart of Christ is that his grieving is in the present tense. It might actually even be rendered in the verse grieving, rather than grieved, because it's ongoing, it's continual. Yes, the Lord was angered by their hardness of heart, but what continued beyond his anger was his ongoing grieving over their stubbornness. He knew their heart response. And our hearts should be grieving for those working for Planned Parenthood, not just angered. It is grieving that is going to move our hearts to action and serve as our motivation for the gospel to reach those who desperately need God's forgiveness. To pray for those responsible for abortion so that they can receive the mercy and the grace of God's forgiveness through Christ is our ministry. That's our ministry. That's what needs to be cultivated in our heart as we grieve. Not our anger. Not our condemnation. Not the, the, you know, the, the machine gun of, of, of comments tearing them down. And our Lord's emotions also led him to take action as his rebuke culminates. Look at the middle of verse 5. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Lord's rebuke finished with a miraculous healing. By commanding the man to stretch out his deformed hand before everyone, all eyes literally saw the man's hand go from being deformed to being transformed. Can you imagine what the intensity of this scene must have been like as they witnessed that right there? Right there in their midst? Listen to what D. Edmund Hebert says about this verse. The healing was an act of Jesus' own volition, wrought without a touch or the use of external means. Jesus thus did nothing that violated their trivial Sabbath regulations. The healing did not even have the appearance of work. It was unmistakably the act of supernatural power. 
His ability to heal the man's hand by the exercise of his will was proof that Jesus was more than a mere man. And the capstone of the Lord's rebuke to the Pharisees is that he did something that they would claim isn't permissible to do on the Sabbath when he healed the man. But Jesus did it in such a way that even the pharisaical restrictions and regulations couldn't trap the Lord. Jesus refused to fall prey to their trap. And he knew what they were trying to do. And just like the first Sabbath controversy with his disciples where his words exposed their religious self-righteousness and their system and how incompatible it was to the gospel, Christ's words and actions have exposed them Yet again, their purpose plot was foiled. His severe rebuke was now delivered. And it leaves us with our final subpoint and verse the Pharisees and the Herodians' conspiracy. Look at verse 6. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And we've seen the it's official. We've seen the full progression. They've gone from questioning Jesus. Who, who has the authority to forgive sins? Well, why are your disciples doing this, right? We see the, the, the questions re- repeated through the, the... Then they're complaining. And now they move here to verse 6, to conspiring. In Matthew and Luke's account, neither of them mention the Herodians as Mark does here. And here's some insight for the Herodians' inclusion. The alliance of these two otherwise antagonistic parties must argue for the magnitude of their opposition to Jesus. The inclusion of, her, of the Herodians in verse 6 is a forewarning that the opposition ranged against Jesus is not only religious, but perhaps political as well. And we see this as, during the Passion Week. We see this as he takes the journey to the cross that there were political leaders that Jesus had to appear before in numerous trials, right? We see that. The opposition. And Jesus Christ's life and ministry was beginning to impact every aspect of society. And those who stood opposed to his popularity were even willing to cross party lines so that they could somehow manage to get rid of him. And verse 6 says, they began conspiring how to destroy him. In the Greek, this word destroy, it can mean utterly destroy, ruin, or even kill. I find it striking that we haven't even uh, gone halfway through Mark chapter 3, and we've already faced and seen the the bridegroom is going to be taken away from the party, which was mentioned in Mark 2.20 and the plot against Jesus' life now in Mark 3.6. Indeed, the cornerstone for Christ's passion and death is already being set. Well, what should we walk away from the Sabbath sabotage series with? I, th- I think certainly the, the, the main takeaway for us to see and one for us to hang on to is that we do see the threat. We do see how ugly religious self-righteousness looks, how it's completely incompatible with the gospel. We need to be reminded that Our righteousness in Christ never grants us permission to ever elevate ourselves over another person. That we're not better than. We're better off. 
It's true, we're better off. But we're not better than. That God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that he who is low, fear not a great fall. Humility and holiness go hand in hand, and we need not look any further than Christ to see the reality of this statement. Well, to close our time, I want to read a quote from William Grinnell, who had this to say about humility and holiness. This is the Christian in complete armor, William Grinnell. This is who we named Liam after, by the way. If you really want to be holy, be humble, because the two are clasped together. Satan's policy is to crack the breastplate, excuse me, crack the bless, crack the breastplate of righteousness by beating it out further than the metal can bend. And every time you trust in this distortion, You destroy the very nature and purpose of the armor. Your righteousness becomes an unrighteousness, and your holiness degenerates into wickedness. You see this with the Pharisees as they stuck their chests out, proud. Is anything worse than pride? Such a pride which runs rampant over the way which God himself has made for saving souls? If you really want to be holy... Be humble because the two are clasped together. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Micah 6.8 God has not asked you to earn heaven by your holiness, but to show love and thankfulness to Christ who earned it for you. Thus we have insight into the way Christ persuaded his disciples to walk in holiness. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. It is as if he said, You know why I came and why I am going out of the world. I lay down my life and I take it up again to intercede for you. If you value these deeds and the blessed fruit you reap from them, prove it by loving me enough to keep my commandments. When everything the saint does through Christ is offered up as a thanksgiving sacrifice to him, then this is gospel holiness bred and fed by his love, by this love. Because Christ has loved us with a love strong as death. Our response is that of a bride. And quotes Song of Solomon 8.6, I will give thee my loves. The saint in Solomon's song had confessed her faith in Christ and had drunk deeply of his love for her. And now to return his love and thankfulness, She stirred herself to entertain him with the pleasant fruits of his own graces gathered from her holy behavior. She did not lay these fruits up to feed her pride and self-confidence, but reserved them for her beloved so he could have all the praise. Beautiful, beautiful expression. Thankful and very fitting for our closure of Sabbath sabotage as we move on. That we will continue to grow in humility. That we will continue to see the incompatibility of self-righteousness. And that we would walk humbly in our pursuit of Christ. Please pray with me.